Psalm 76, give ear to the word of God. It says to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. Uh, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Uh, Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's once again pray and ask God to teach us his word and give us understanding into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from you, uh, from the mouth of our God. And so we ask that you would feed us this morning, uh, strengthen us in our faith, give us understanding, work in us by your Holy Spirit. Again, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Teach us your word, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 76 uh, is... Uh, It has a recurring theme in it, and that theme is that God is the God who is to be feared. Uh, That recurring theme is found in this brief psalm uh, with some form or another of the word fear uh, being found at least four times in the second half of this short psalm. Uh, In verse 7, for instance, the psalmist puts it very emphatically. He says, saying to the Lord, he says, but you, you are to be feared. It's, it's another way of saying you alone or you and you only are to be feared. Um, you know, we don't, we don't uh, render things in the same grammatical order and things that they do in Hebrew or, or Greek in the New Testament. But if you were to put this in a, in a more literal way in the word order, uh, it would be you are to be feared, you. That is really what, what the psalmist is saying here. In verse 8, he writes, from the heavens, you, that's God, utter judgment And what happened? The earth feared and was still. That's what happens when God utters his judgments. It's as if the entire world stopped in fear and wonder and awe at God. God's just judgments in this life and certainly on the last day are such that he is to be feared and him alone. In fact, you might recall in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 10, verse 28, Uh, Jesus talks to his disciples and tells them not to fear those who can kill the body. He doesn't say no one's ever going to do it. In fact, if you know your church history, the only one of the 12 who did, well, not counting Judas who killed himself, the only one of the 12 who didn't die at at a martyr's death was the Apostle John. They were all killed for their, their faithfulness to Christ. But in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus himself says, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't fear man, fear whom? God. 
Kind of like Psalm 37 that Rob just read. Fret not because of evildoers. Fear God. Trust in him. Commit your way to him. Twice in the last two verses of our psalm, in verses 11 and 12, uh, the psalmist describes the Lord as, quote, him who is to be feared, uh, or more literally, to him who is the fear. You could put it that way as well. And then in verse 12, him who what? Who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. The mightiest people on the, in the world, the kings of the world, of the earth, are to fear God. This is the God who is known, verse 1, and glorified by his people. This is the God who is to be feared, who dwells in the midst of his people, verse 2, and who watches over, cares for, and even as this psalm tells us, defends his people, verses 3 through 6. And because of that, he is to be feared by those who would harm the apple of his eye. They, they very often don't fear him, which is why they do what they do. But what does the, the psalm tell us and elsewhere in scripture? He will arise in judgment at some point to save his people. And then in verse 10, it tells us even the wrath of man shall praise God and bring glory to him. The worst that this world can throw at God's people will result in the end in God's praise. There's nothing they can do to stop it. And so because of this, the people of God, the psalm tells us, are to worship God. We are to offer up to him right sacrifices in light of God's mercies to us. In Christ, we are to call upon God in prayer. We are to offer up to him the sacrifice of praise. We are to offer up our bodies, Romans 12 tells us, as living sacrifices which are holy and acceptable to God. Now, the first thing our psalmist uh, tells us here in this verse, in verses 1 and 2, uh, the first thing the psalmist would have us to remember is that God who is to be feared dwells among his people. There's a strange combination of ideas in some ways, but the God is to, who is to be feared dwells among and with his people. In other words, it's another way of saying God is with us who are in Christ, and God is, if he's with us, he is also what? He's for us. You could say that that's kind of the main point of this entire psalm, is that the God is who is to be feared is with us. And he illustrates that for us later in this psalm by the example of a miraculous deliverance or salvation from their enemies. Look at verses 1 through 2 first. He says, In Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel, his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Now, You know, there's a lot of um, localized language here when it comes to God. Now, God is infinite. There's no place where he is not. We know that. But at the same time, the psalmist can say, and in his day, it was in Judah that God was known. His name was great where? In Israel, his abode, the place where his tabernacle was, was established in Salem or Jerusalem. Salem means peace. And it says his dwelling place is in Zion the earthly uh, Israel at the time of the writing of this psalm. Now, in the Old Testament times, the, the true knowledge of God and worship of God was not literally, but in many ways it was confined, more or less, to the earthly nation of Israel. A very small speck on the map in some ways, when you think of how big the world is, that for, for many, many hundreds and even thousands of years, the knowledge of God, his ways, and his worship was localized in a very small uh, place, Uh, it was there in Judah that God was known. It was in Israel. His name was great. Uh, and he established, when it says established his abode, 
uh, that word is the same word for tabernacle. So I think it's referring to the temple uh, really there in verse 2. Uh, there in, in Salem or Jerusalem and his, his dwelling place was in Zion. Now, God's temple, his tabernacle before that was in Jerusalem. It's the house of God, God's abode. And back in those days, the people of Israel, you know, they had in some ways they had an advantage of it over us, but maybe not really. But they had at least kind of a standing uh, visible reminder or representation of God's presence dwelling among them. And that that was found in the temple. But remember, remember at the dedication of the temple when Solomon, when Solomon had the temple built, uh, he, he said some things in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Solomon wisely said this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Now, words, Solomon knew, and, we, and they should have known too, You can't keep God in a box. As glorious as the Old Testament earthly temple was, it was a shadow of what was to come in Christ. It pointed forward to Christ. And it certainly didn't mean that they had God contained in a box where only they and they only had access to him. But in a special sense there, the Lord dwelt there among his people. Think about the amazing privilege that you and I have in the church today. Uh, We have really the substance of which those things were only a, a type or a foreshadowing of in the Old Testament. You know, in God's administration of the Old Testament, his covenant of grace in the Old Testament and the gospel uh, was foreshadowing of, of what he would do when he sent his only son to die for our sins. Christ was and is the true temple of God. Remember he said, uh, you know, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they thought he was blaspheming and thought he was talking about the earthly temple, the building. And he was talking about his own body. Uh, So, you know, what is described of in the psalm here in the days of the earthly temple is in our day in Christ even more true, not less, for the church today. So these same truths that we're learning in this psalm, even though we don't have the exact same circumstances that they have had in their day, uh, they still apply to us sometimes in a more true way than it was in their own day. Now, the Lord has promised uh, in, in the end of God, Matthew's gospel, to be with us always, even to the end of the age. Not only that, but his Holy Spirit dwells within each and every believer in such a way that Paul can say in Ephesians 4.30 that you have been, if you're a believer, sealed for the day of redemption. You know, just as the Holy Spirit, you know, the Shekinah glory of God entered the temple and the tabernacle before that, In a very real sense, the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside each believer in Christ. And also the body of every believer, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, is a temple. He chooses that word for a reason. A temple of the Holy Spirit. What does that jog your memory back to? The Old Testament temple. He's saying we have a temple and it's not a building. And the Holy Spirit dwells within you and that makes your body, not the building, a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the God who is to be feared dwells among and even dwells in his people who believe in Christ. Well, the second thing he tells us is not only does God dwell among his people, but because of that, the God who is to be feared also defends his people. The God who is to be feared, as the psalmist tells us, dwells among us, and he also defends us, his redeemed people as well. His watchful care over us is always present to defend us. Look at verses 3 
through 6. The psalmist writes, There he broke the flashing arrows. He is God, right? The shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. Then he says, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Now, the, the superscription above or the title above this psalm, you know, some of, the, some of those titles or superscriptions, they tell us kind of what are the historical circumstances that the psalms were written about. Well, this one doesn't tell us that at all, does it? It doesn't really tell us what the occasion was, what had happened that caused him to write this psalm. Uh, but many commentators believe that this psalm was written regarding God's deliverance of his people from the wicked Assyrian king Sennacherib. Now, the events involving that pagan king, his threats against God's people, and God's miraculous salvation of his people in defeating Sennacherib and his army uh, are detailed for us in a couple places in your Old Testament. Uh, you can write these down and look them up later. I encourage you to read them both. But 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, as well as Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. Now, during the reign of, of Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom where the temple was and where Jerusalem was, during his reign, Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, started to attack the land of Judah. It says in 2 Kings 18.13 that he had taken, quote, all of the fortified cities of Judah. Now, if, it's almost like a flipping on his head of the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites. Remember, they went into all these places that were fortified cities, Jericho and I, and God delivered them into their hands. Well, it's almost like it's turned on its head. And now you have this wicked pagan king going into, going into to Israel. He had taken them captive into Assyria, and now he was coming for Judah. And he, he, he got all the way to the capital. He, he defeated and took every, every fortified city there, and he had now set his sights on Jerusalem, where the temple was, Sennacherib. And his armies had conquered numerous lands up to that point, and he even mocked the Lord, the true, the one true and living God, to the king Hezekiah, saying this in verse 33. He tells him, "Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria?" In other words, this isn't my first rodeo. I have gone through everywhere I've gone, everywhere my foot has stepped, I have conquered. All the gods of the nations have done nothing to stop my conquest. And what's he saying? And yours won't either. Yours will be just like theirs and nothing will happen. He even told the people of Judah not to listen to Hezekiah when he told them that the Lord was going to deliver them. He tells them not to listen to the lying words of your king if he tells you God's going to save you. He's not going to do it. He mocked their faith. Sennacherib's envoy uh, even delivered a threatening letter to Hezekiah. Put it, put it on paper, you know, for the record. And uh, to Hezekiah, this is what he tells Hezekiah the king in this letter. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction and shall you be delivered? That phrase devoted to destruction is the same phrase you read of in the conquest of Canaan. It means wiping everything out. 
The Hebrew word, it indicates, you know, kind of a holy war. So even a pagan king used this kind of a phrase, and he turned it on the people of Israel. But remember one thing, something the king of Assyria forgot. The gods of the nations were nothing. But the Lord is the one true and living God. He is the God who is to be feared. And Sennacherib was going to learn that the hard way, wasn't he? And so what happened? What did God do? We are told that King Hezekiah took that letter. uh, And what did he do with it? It says he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Took the letter. No doubt he was afraid by it. Afraid caused, caused him to fear. And what did he do? He went right to the temple. And he took it to God and said, look at this, basically. And he prayed to God. And this is what it says in in 2 Kings 19, 15 through 19. It says, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, and you have made heaven and earth. He's telling him, It's you. You're God. They're not. You're the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made the heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he he has sent to mock the living God. He's not mocking Hezekiah, Hezekiah says. He's mocking you. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands And I've cast their gods into the fire. Why? For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That's how to pray. He tells them, you alone of, are the, are, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You're Judah, you're Israel's God, but you're the God of all the earth. Every nation has to bow down and serve you. Uh, and he says that he wanted them to deliver his people, not just so they might have mercy, but that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And God heard his prayer. He answered from heaven And that army of Sennacherib never got to do so much as to shoot an arrow at Jerusalem. They never even even got to start building their siege mountains around Jerusalem. For as God told Hezekiah through his prophet Isaiah, he says, verse 34, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Doesn't mean that God wasn't showing mercy to his people, but he was going to do it for the glory of his own name. God was standing up for his own glory. Well, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35 tells us there it says, That night the angel of the Lord, sounds kind of like the Exodus, right? The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. You can imagine that scene. The Israelites didn't lift a finger. The, the, the army camped around them, went to sleep that night, making plans for war. Think about what that must have looked like. A hundred, almost 200,000 soldiers of the mightiest army in the world at the time, the land of Assyria. And when they got up the next morning, just stacks and stacks of dead bodies. Didn't have to raise 
a finger to defend themselves. Well, now back to the psalm. At the end of verse 3 of our text, you might have noticed that little Hebrew word, uh, selah, S-E-L-A-H. Now, we, we don't really know what that word means. Commentators can make suggestions, but we don't really know. Uh, that's why it's really what it is in your Bibles. They don't know how to translate it because they don't know what it means, so they, tr- they do the best thing they can. They transliterate it. What you, when, I, when you read that word in English, you're pronouncing the Hebrew word. That's really what you're doing there, selah. That's how they think it's, it's pronounced. Uh, but many scholars mean that that little word, when you see it in the Psalms, it indicates that we are to pause and to think. That we're to take, take a time out as you're reading through it and think about something in that verse uh, that we are to give extra thought to. Now, you might say that we should pause and think about everything you read in Scripture, and that's certainly true uh, because it's God's word. But in this case, even though it seems to be right in the middle of a, of a thought, it almost seems like an interruption in verses 3 through 6. I think we would do well to stop and think about what he says there in verse 3. Charles Spurgeon, you know, he has a commentary on the whole book, the whole book of Psalms. It's called The Treasury of David, and he does something very nice for pastors like me. Uh, he, he includes at the end of each of his treatments of, of each psalm a list of sayings and quotations from previous writers, many of whom were the Puritans and, and whatnot. And uh, he, he takes quotations from earlier writers and theologians on each psalm and, and quotes them on each verse of the psalm. So he's not just giving you his own notes, he's giving you what he looked at as well. And in his notes for this psalm, he includes a lengthy quote from the great English Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin. Uh, Goodwin points out that that little word there, in verse 3, where he says, there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. He points out that this was a reference to the temple. The temple. Where did Hezekiah pray? Where did he take that letter? The temple. Goodwin writes this, How suitably in answer hereunto it is said here in the psalm that God gave forth sentence presently out of his tabernacle, yea, and that so suddenly too as that the very execution is said to be done there, that is, thence, or from there. And yet again in the eighth verse of the psalm it is said to be a sentence from heaven too. In other words, Where was Sennacherib defeated? You might say, well, out of the battlefield where the soldiers died. The psalmist says, no, he was defeated in the temple. It was as if God judged God's judgment from that place where Hezekiah prayed was where it happened ultimately and caused all those soldiers of of Sennacherib's army to die. You know, in in verses 3 through 6, the psalmist, the sons of Korah, they, they commemorate uh, and celebrate God's mighty deliverance of his people in answer to their prayers. He despoiled those who were going to make spoil of Jerusalem. They, it says, verse uh, there, they sank into sleep, or the King James puts it more literally, they slept their sleep. In other words, they died. God struck them down. It says, all the men of war were unable to use their hands. They couldn't lift a finger against Jerusalem. Because God struck them down. In verse 6, we're told that at God's rebuke, the rider and horse, or it could also be chariot and horse, fell asleep or died. Like, you know, the chariots and horses, that was the, that was the heavy artillery of the day. When you saw, in fact, if, I, I encourage you to read those chapters in Second Kings and Isaiah sometime maybe this afternoon. There's a point where the envoy of Sennacherib tells the king, king Hezekiah, 
I'll tell you what, I'll make you, I'm paraphrasing, I'll make you a deal. We'll give you 2,000 chariots if you have enough brave men to man them. We'll make it a fair fight. We'll give you some of our chariots if you can find guys to ride them. Like, the chariots were the scary things. They were the big, the big artillery, the bombs, and yet those things, God put them down. God, God, uh, God struck them down. It's just like when he, when he got the people out of, out of Egypt in the Exodus. Exodus 15, there's a song of Moses, and there's a refrain, the horse and the rider he's tossed into the sea. Same kind of idea going on here that God has struck down even their chariots and their, their horses. In other words, they were no longer to be feared. Who was to be feared? God. Not, not Sennacherib, not his chariots, not his horses, not his soldiers. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, but you, you are to be feared, God. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Not Sennacherib. Not his army of almost 200,000 men. For from the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. That's the lesson that here. God is to be feared, not man. And that is the lesson that you and I, I think, constantly need to learn and relearn. Easy to read it on the page and five minutes later you see something that gets you all spun up and fretting and afraid. We need to learn that lesson and relearn it because we are constantly being tempted to fear. We fear our circumstances. We fear man. And yet what does the psalmist say in verse 10? Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you put on like a belt. What does that, what does that mean? Charles Spurgeon sums it up this way. He says, the verse clearly teaches that even the most rampant evil is under the control of the Lord and will in the end be overruled for his praise. Nothing can come your way except through God's hand. And he will, he will work things out in such a way that even the worst they throw at you will result and be overruled, he says, for God's praise. In his book, Faith and Life, Benjamin Warfield, great Princeton theologian of, of uh, the 19th century, he writes this, uh, It is well for us to remind ourselves of this great fact for a time like this, speaking of verse 10, that, go, that man's wrath shall praise God. It may seem to us as if the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the world were on the point of being overwhelmed by the violence of human passion. The whole earth appears to have become a churning mass of rage. We see millions of our fellow creatures flying at one another's throats in a ruthless struggle and whole countries harried and reduced to ruin. Up from the battlefields and up from the wasted lands behind the battlefields rise only cries of rage and despair. It is good for us to remember that the Lord God omnipotent reigns over all, that all this welter of blood and iron he holds well in his hand, that none of it would have occurred without his direction, and that nothing can occur in it apart from his appointment, and I do not merely say that he will overrule it all for his glory, but that all of it will conduce to his praise. Now, he wrote those words a little over 100 years ago during World War I, the, the supposed war to end all wars. And here we are over 100 years later, and God is still faithful and still building his church and defending his people. Those words that Warfield wrote 
about this psalm uh, were as true. They're as true now as they were when he wrote them all that time ago. And we do need to be reminded of those truths of Scripture that the God is to, who is to be feared dwells among his church and defends his church. And even the worst of the wrath of her enemies will result in God's praise, for he will cause all things to work together for our good and for his glory. Well, what are we to do in response to all that? What, what is our response? Thankfully, the psalmist doesn't leave us in doubt. He doesn't leave us in the dark. In verses 11 to 12, he tells us what we are to do in light of these great truths uh, of, of the rest of the psalm that he pointed out. And look at verses 11 through 12. He says, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. You know, there is a command to God's redeemed people here as well as an implied threat of judgment and a call to repentance to the unbeliever and especially to the enemies of God's church. First, what are we to do? We are to make vows to the Lord our God and perform them or pay them. We are to bring gifts or offerings to him who is to be feared. Now, this this is not a bribe. That's what you do with idols. You don't bribe God. You can't bribe God. You can't make God in your debtor. This is a response to God's mercy. This is after the fact that God has delivered his people. We are to bring offerings, uh, uh, grateful offerings in response to God and his mercy. You know, we and we don't have a temple, obviously, like they did in the Old Testament in the psalmist's day. Uh, so we don't bring animal sacrifices and whatnot. But we, too, are to fear God and worship him in reverence and awe. We, too, have gifts to bring. In fact, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says this. Think about the imagery that Paul uses in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Remember this? If you know the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters, Paul basically explains the gospel. He he takes 11 chapters laying out the great truths of the gospel of Christ. And here's here's the takeaway or the application. After all that, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, because of all I just said, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We don't have a physical temple, but what does Paul say? Guess what? We still have sacrifices to bring, sacrifices of praise, even a living sacrifice, not an animal to kill, your own bodies to offer them up to God as living sacrifices. And why? What does he say? By the mercies of God or in light of the mercies of God. Because of everything I just told you in Romans 1 through 11, even though Paul never put the numbers on there, right? Everything I told you about God's mercies in Christ for 11 chapters, because of all that, offer up your bodies as living Sacrifices. Why are we to live lives of holiness unto the Lord if we are believers? Why are we to believe, we who believe, why are we to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices? It's because of the mercies of God that we have only in Jesus Christ by faith. Same truth taught in Romans 12 is taught here in Psalm 76. And so I'll say, do you, do you know the Lord this morning? Do you, if you know the Lord, do you think much of his mercies upon you and toward you in Jesus Christ? 
If you do, then show it in how you worship him. Show him in how you live by walking in holiness and gratitude for God's mercies in Christ. And one of the enemies of, of God's church, you know, in verse 12, the psalmist kind of warns them and encourages us by saying that God, the Lord, cuts off the spirit of princes and is even to be what? Feared by the kings of the earth. Even the kings of this world are to fear God and serve him. They're warned to do so in the Psalms and elsewhere. In fact, uh, look in Psalm, chapter, Psalm number 2, verses 10 to 12, the second Psalm. At the end of that Psalm, it says this. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That command, that warning, still applies to the kings of this world now as much as it ever has. When they, when they gather against Christ's church, they're really gathering against Christ. And that's something that, what does it say in Psalm 2? The Lord in heaven laughs. He who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs at them. Because he's God and they're nothing. They're like dust in the scales to him. There is nothing to God. And so he tells them then as he tells them now, all the presidents, kings, prime ministers, whatever rulers you can think of, he tells them, be wise, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And what are they to do? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's a solemn warning, but it's also a gracious invitation, isn't it? It's, a, it's an invitation or command to repent, to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive mercy and salvation from him. It's, it's an evangelistic appeal to the kings of the earth to turn from their wicked ways before it's too late and turn to Christ because it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. All, all who do so, they may then serve the Lord with fear, no longer the fear of terror and dread of judgment, but the kind of fear that a child has for his father, a fear mixed with love to the point where he could even say that he tells them that they might rejoice with trembling. That's the kind of fear of God that a believer has, a fear, a loving fear of a child for their father. Amen.